Good morning. It is, it is really good to be here, and I still have that shirt from that conference that I wear on a weekly basis. Uh, if you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to be in Acts chapter 7 this morning, Acts 7, to open that up and keep it out. Um, it is a joy to be here. As I said in the Sunday school hour where we talked about RUF for a little bit, I've never been to Lawndale before other than that one retreat. Um, but I know a lot of you, and I know a lot of you support RUF, love RUF, uh, pray for me and my family personally. Um, I believe all my kids get birthday cards from Lawndale Presbyterian Church, which they love and are excited about. Um, and so thank you for loving us so well. Thank you for loving Christ's mission on the college campus, and thank you for sending me your students. Uh, you have wonderful children of this church that I get to spend a few years with at Mississippi State. And so... Thank you for that. Uh, we will be looking in Acts chapter 7 uh, this morning at one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Um, and I wonder if you would be surprised to know that my favorite passage of Scripture is about a man dying, a man named Stephen. And I remember reading this for the first time um, after becoming a Christian and never really being able to get over the story of Stephen. Uh, we would not say he's a main character in the book of Acts. Uh, he's only in two chapters. Uh, we would not say that his story is one that maybe everyone knows. But this one moment in Stephen's life, I cannot stop thinking about. And it's the last moments of his life. And I think it's because of this, because in the last moments of Stephen's life, he really does show us what it looks like to be enthralled with the beauty of Jesus. What we see is a man who dies staring at Jesus, enthralled with him, only able to, to talk with Jesus and not the men around him who are murdering him. What we see is what it looks like for a life to be completely changed by looking at the beauty of Christ. Uh, Doug Kelly, systematic theology professor for a long time, talks about the forgotten doctrine of the beauty of Christ. That actually his second volume that's on Christology, he titles it The Beauty of Christ. So the question I simply want to ask this morning as we look at this text is, do we find Jesus beautiful? Do we find him worthy of our life and our death? Do we find Christ beautiful? So with that in mind, I'm going to set some context up in this passage. I'm plopping us at the end of the first third of this book. We have a man named Stephen who was chosen to be one of the first deacons of the church. The apostles overworked with ministry of word and deed, and so led by the Holy Spirit, they create a second office in the church, the one that we call a deacon. And Stephen was one of the men chosen, set aside to do the work of caring for orphans and widows in their midst. And Stephen did that work and got the attention of a group of people he probably didn't want an audience in front of, a Sanhedrin council, made up of about 23 to 71 people who were questioning theologically Stephen and his ministry, and Stephen answers. And he answers with the rest of Acts chapter 7, which we're not going to get into this morning. I urge you to read it where Stephen launches in to basically a summary of the Old Testament, showing over and over again how God sends prophets and yet the world rejects those prophets, about how all of this pointed to Christ and yet the world keeps missing it. And so Stephen defends Christ to these people and this is the response he gets. And this is where our text picks up 
Acts chapter seven, starting in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Amen. When the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of God stands forever and ever. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Uh, Father in heaven, um, this is your word. We're your people and we need it. And Lord, help us to see what Stephen saw that day. Jesus, help us to see you more clearly and find you more beautiful. In Christ's name, amen. Anne Lamont, author in her book, Bird by Bird, which is actually a book about writing, tells a short story. And the story is about a family, we presume with two adopted children, a boy about seven years old, a young girl about two. And we learn that the young girl um, received a terrible diagnosis, a form of leukemia. And the doctors were talking about the prognosis and the way forward, and they said there is one treatment that we can try to prolong her life, but it would require a blood transfusion. And so the search was on to find a match, someone who could donate blood to this young girl to extend her life. And what they found is the only person in the family that was a match was the little boy. And so the parents set the little boy down and asked him a question, would you be willing to give blood to help your sister live longer? Now, as a parent, you know exactly what's going on here. This is not really much of a question. This is an opportunity for the boy to show character. They're gonna make him do it, but they wanted to present that opportunity to him. And the little boy thought and said, can I think about it tonight and get back to you in the morning? If I was that boy's father, I would say, no, you can't think about it. You are going to do this. But those parents wisely said, we'll talk to you in the morning. The next morning, the little boy woke up and said, that he'll do it. And so the day came, the day of the appointment, and the little boy was in a hospital bed and, and they were beginning to drain blood from his arm and he closed his eyes, Lamont says, and exhaled deeply. And the nurse uh, looked at the little boy and said, is there anything you need? Are you okay? And the little boy said to the nurse with tears in his eyes, will you tell me when I'm about to die? The little boy misunderstood what he was being asked for that day. He didn't think he was being asked for some of his blood. He thought he was being asked for all of his blood. And so go back to that night where he thought about it. He was not thinking about going through some small pain for his sister. He was thinking about laying down his life for his two-year-old sister. And at some point in that night, he said he was going to do it. Because at some point in that night, he said she was worth it. That's an amazing little boy, isn't it? And I start with that story because I want us to see the amazing moment that we're seeing with Stephen. 
And sometimes we can read a story like this and just think this is what Bible people do. They give good speeches, they die for Jesus, and the church moves on. But this is an amazing moment here of a man who finds Jesus so worthy that he gives all of his life and his death to him. This is not just a great moment in church history, though it is the first martyr of the church. This isn't just a man whose faith we should try to emulate, though it is, and we'll certainly see that this morning. This is simply what happens when we catch a vision of the beauty of Jesus. We will withhold nothing from him and find him infinitely worthy. Do we find Jesus this beautiful? This morning as we walk through this, I want us to see what Stephen saw. What what Stephen saw that we need to hold to this morning, and I wanna say he saw three things. He saw the beauty of Christ's location, the beauty of Christ's love, and the beauty of Christ's plan. His location, his love, and his plan. Two out of the three of those are L. That's the best I could have done. I'm almost there. But first, he saw the beauty of Christ's location, where Jesus is. Um, Jesus will lead us to places that we did not ask to go, nor do we want to go. And that is certainly true for Stephen. Uh, Think about his life for a second. He was set aside as one of the first deacons. He volunteered to help orphans and widows. That's what he was going to do with his life. And apparently he did it well. Twice the text tells us that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. And once the text tells us he was doing great and mighty works. Now we don't know what that means. We don't exactly know how long Stephen was doing this ministry or what these great works were, but we know it was enough to attract attention of a very dangerous group of people. A group of people who were looking for a way to harm the church. And so they call Stephen in and ask him to defend himself. And again, it's his speech in the rest of Acts chapter seven where he goes through the whole Old Testament, but, but I want you to see where he ends. Where does he land the plane, so to speak, on this sermon that he gives? And it's in verse 51, if your Bibles are still open. This is right before our text, where Stephen says this. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. That's a tough way to end a speech. Those are fighting words. Those are dangerous words. That's not an apology. And Stephen then finds himself in the world of trouble that is verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, these powerful men, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. After giving a faithful response, what Stephen is seeing is a group of men who are rolling up their sleeves looking for rocks to throw at him. And I've always wondered this, whenever I encounter a story like this in the Bible, I always have questions I wish I can ask the the people that were present there. In other words, Stephen's one of the first people in the new heavens and new earth that I wanna sit down and ask questions to. And one of the questions I would ask him is what were you thinking about in verse 54? In other words, what was on your mind after you gave your speech and before you saw Jesus? Because if he's anything like me, he'd be thinking, why am I here right now? Why is this happening to me? Why aren't the apostles answering these theological questions? I just wanted to help orphans and widows. Why am I here? Why is this happening so fast? Why can't I just go about my life without this disruption? And maybe a most important question on my mind would be, 
why am I alone now? Why am I here by myself in this position? I wonder if you've ever thought those questions before that Jesus took you to a place that you didn't ask to go and don't want to go. And you're asking Jesus, why am I here right now? Why is my family going through this season? Why has my career gone the way it's gone? I didn't ask for this. Why did this diagnosis come in? Jesus, I didn't ask to go through this. Why am I here? And why do I feel so alone in this suffering? Well, whatever was going through Stephen's mind at this point, we know what happens next. The grace of the Lord that verse 54 ends and verse 55 begins, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Again, another question, Stephen, what did this look like? That you were looking at only murderers in front of you and then all of a sudden heaven opened and the glory of God, what does that look like? And then he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And from now on, Stephen will only say one more thing directed toward his assailants and it is simply that he sees Jesus. Stephen only able to look at Jesus. And you gotta ask, okay, what is he seeing in this moment? He's seeing at least that though he's being declared guilty in this tribunal, he looks up to see his innocence. He looks up to see the one that declares him righteous. He looks up to the one that is most notably in this text standing at the right hand of God. If, you, if that sounds strange to you, it, it kind of should that every other reference to Jesus at the right hand of God, he's sitting. But here he's standing. Commentators go back and forth that that really means anything, but it at least means this. Jesus is standing in solidarity with his man and, G, and Stephen finds out that in this moment, he's not alone. He's never been alone. That Christ is there getting ready to say the words, well done, good and faithful servant, getting ready to declare him alive in the kingdom of God as he becomes dead in this world. He sees his salvation and his hope and his savior that he is united to for eternity. And again, I wonder if I could ask Stephen, if he was here today and I'd ask him, tell us the events of that day. Do you you know what I'm convinced he would say? I remember that day, I gave a speech, they got mad, I can't really remember what they got mad about, but you're not gonna believe it, I looked up and I saw the glory of God and I saw Jesus looking at me. I saw the scars in his hands and his feet and his side, he was looking at me proudly and he was talking to God the Father about me, interceding on my behalf. Do we remember where Christ is right now? that he is at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, interceding on behalf of his church. This is John Frame in his systematic theology. What is Christ doing right now? He's always interceding at the Father's right hand. Even now, he is thinking of us, knowing and bringing our needs to the Father's attention. This is grammatically incorrect, I think, but go with me here. Where in your life do you need to hear that Jesus is there at the Father's right hand? Where in your life do you need to hear that he is interceding on behalf of his saints? Where do you need to hear that you're not alone 
and your fight against sin and your struggles in your family and your struggles at work and the deep-seated loneliness and sadness of life, where do you see that Jesus is thinking of you right now, interceding on your behalf, looking proudly upon his people? Stephen sees the beauty of where Jesus is. Can't stop looking at him. But then secondly, I want to look at the beauty of Christ's love. That's also what Stephen sees here. Um, And specifically, a love towards enemies. Because can we say that Stephen made a few enemies this day? He at least made between 23 and 71 enemies looking at him now. And what Stephen does next is he simply tells these men what he sees. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him, then cast him out of the city and stoned him. What makes a group of learned, respected individuals come apart like this? Putting fingers in their ears and running together like wild men at this person? It really is because Stephen just said the most offensive thing he could have said. He preached the gospel. He just told them that Jesus is at the right hand of God. And if Jesus is at the right hand of God, that means Jesus is God. That means his death was not the end of it, but there was a resurrection after, an ascension after that, that his death was a substitutionary atonement for his people, that he is God. He has said the most offensive thing to these people. Why? Because it undercuts their whole way of life. It undercuts their view of righteousness. It undercuts their view of works, their view of the law. He just said that Jesus did everything he said he was going to do and more. And now Stephen is looking at these men with murder in their eyes. The gospel was beautifully offensive. And everywhere I've gone, if you know me, you can ask students in this room, I'm a pretty nice guy. And what I really want people to do is to like me. But everywhere I've been, I have seen the gospel offend people in ways that I just wasn't ready for. And, and you have to see why it starts with you're a sinner in need, doesn't it? I'm blown away every year that college students even want to hear this message. And yet by his spirit, he calls his people to it. If Christ had enemies, his people will have enemies. We will have enemies in this world. But there's two wrong ways to react to that idea. Two wrong ways to react to the idea that Christians will have enemies. And the first wrong way we can react to that idea is to be a little too excited about that. It's to be people going to look for a fight. It's to to feel that faithfulness really is getting into every conflict we absolutely can. Sanctification by disagreement, that's who we're going to be. I don't see Stephen doing that. I see Stephen really just wanting to be a faithful man, serving his church and serving his king. And when he's called to give a response, he gives a bold response. But he doesn't go looking for that. We won't have to go looking for enemies. We'll find them. But another wrong way to go about this, this idea that we'll have enemies, is to avoid that at all costs. Is to avoid awkward moments. Is to avoid any sort of confrontation. Is to avoid saying the wrong thing. And and why is that wrong? Because if we as Christ's people have the greatest news the world has ever known, the only hope for sinners, how can we not give it to those around us? How could we not suffer an awkward moment? How could, how could we not 
bring that to the ends of the earth. Because Christ calls us to love our enemies. And so how do we do that? How do we love our enemies? Stephen actually shows us. Because as he's dying, he says two more things, doesn't he? He prays twice. He prays for Jesus to receive his spirit and then prays for the forgiveness of those who are killing him. Does that sound familiar? Those are two of the last seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, almost word for word. And again, another question I wanna ask is, Stephen, how did you know to say that? There's obviously no New Testament at this point. There's no record that Stephen was at the crucifixion, that maybe there was an oral transmission that he heard these are the things that Jesus said and he memorized them and got them into his heart. I don't know how he said these things, but I do know this, that as Stephen was looking at Christ, enthralled in his beauty, his eyes upon him, Stephen began to sound more like Jesus. He began to, to look more like Jesus, act more like Jesus, because isn't that what the Christian life is? As we worship him, as we follow him, as we dig deep into his word, as we pray to him, that we begin to look like him, live like him, have the aroma of Christ to the world around us. They tell us young preachers, I'll be careful listening to one podcast, one sermon on preacher too much because you might accidentally begin to sound like them. So one of my favorite preachers is Sinclair Ferguson. He's a 70-year-old Scottish man. And every now and then I will pronounce the word God in a way that a boy from Mississippi should not pronounce the word God. And my wife will say, let's take it easy on the Ferguson for a while. You're starting to sound like him. But in the Christian life is exactly the opposite to be so enamored with Christ, to be so enamored with his beauty, to be so deep into his word, to get into our bones and our hearts that we begin to pick up that cadence to sound like him, to look like him to the world around us, to love like him. Because how does Stephen say, how does he utter this? Forgive them? Because he's looking at the one that while his people were still his enemies, he died for them. Stephen sees Jesus and begins to look like him to the world around us. Do we do that? But then third, and quickly, we see the beauty of Christ's plan. The beauty of Christ's plan. Stephen doesn't know how this is going to work out. What gives Stephen the most rest is simply looking at Jesus. He doesn't say anything about Christ. Are you sure this is your plan? Are you really, am I gonna die right here? How are you gonna get me out of this? He simply commits his spirit to Jesus. But if I maybe can speak irreverently here for a moment, doesn't this story seem a little disappointing from the outside perspective? I mean, I would wonder if people looking at this scene outside the church, what would they say about this? That we have a young leader of the church that we, that we just met and now he's dying. A rising leader whose ministry came to a sudden end. I mean, who wants Stephen's ministry? <laughs> Who wants to be introduced in Acts chapter six and is dead by the time Acts chapter eight starts? How long was he a deacon? Days, weeks, months? We don't know. Did he have a family? Did he have a wife? Did he have children? Did he, did he want to be something else one day? Did he want to be a church planter? What, who was this person? You look at his life and you want to think for a second, tempted to think, this is a disappointment. 
This is not the way I would have planned it. So how is Stephen so at rest here? So at rest that his death was like sleep? He's looking at the world who holds the universe in his hands. He's looking at the one who is always good to his people. Because he doesn't know that God's actually gonna answer Stephen's prayer here, doesn't he? Forgive them for what they, at least one person here is forgiven for what he's done. Saul, who would later become Paul, who was confronted by Jesus himself on the road to Damascus, ironically going blind and then seeing the beauty of Christ for himself and taking that gospel to the ends of the earth. That from the outside perspective, this looks like a bad day for the church, but it's actually an amazing day for the church where God would take the greatest enemy of the church and make him the greatest missionary the church has ever known. Because here's the universal truth. God's plan is always better than our plan. God's plan for my life is better than my dreams for my future. God's plan for my children's life are better than my dreams for them. God's plan for my ministry is better than the plan I have drawn up in my office right now for the fall. It's not gonna go like that plan at all because God is going to work in his own ways and his way is better. Can we see the freedom, the rest from the truth that God's plan is just better than ours? Because his plan of redemption ends with a new heavens and new earth. We will stand with Jesus and I don't have to ask Stephen what he looked like that day because I will be in the presence of Jesus myself with unveiled face. And we will behold not in just a taste, not in just a sample, we will behold the full beauty of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do we see the beauty of Christ's plan? Thomas Boston wrote this, his book, The Crook in the Lot. Standing on the shore of heaven and looking back at what we have been made to pass through, we will say he hath made all things well. Those things that are bitter to the Christian in passing through are very sweet in reflection of them. Standing on the shore of heaven and seeing what God has made us pass through, we will say he hath made all things well. His plan was better than ours. It doesn't take away the pain of this life. It doesn't take away the pain of that diagnosis. It doesn't take away all of our fear. But it puts it in perspective, doesn't it? It puts our eyes on Jesus as Stephen did that day and finding him infinitely worthy, infinitely beautiful, worthy of our life and our death. Do you know what I want for students at Mississippi State more than anything else? I want them to find Jesus more beautiful. And not just for the four years that they're with me, but for the rest of their lives. And I want them transformed by his grace. And I want that for us too, for all of us, to see him more clearly and find him more beautiful. Do you see it? Let me pray.